0: My name is Rob Campbell, and I'll be reading uh, this evening from Travels with Charlie. My plan was clear, concise, and reasonable, I think. For many years, I have traveled in many parts of the world. In America, I live in New York, or dip into Chicago or San Francisco. But New York is no more America than Paris is France, or London is England. Thus, I discovered that. I did not know my own country. I, an American writer writing about America, was working from memory. And the memory is, at best, a faulty, warpy reservoir. I had not heard the speech of America, smelled the grass and trees and sewage, seen its hills and water, its color and quality of light. I knew the changes only from books and newspapers. But more than this. I had not felt the country for 25 years. In short, I was writing of something I did not know about. And it seems to me that in a so-called writer, this is criminal. My memories were distorted by 25 intervening years. Once I traveled about in an old bakery wagon, a double-doored Rattler with a mattress on its floor. I stopped where people stopped or gathered. I listened and looked and felt and in the process had a picture of my country, the accuracy of which was impaired only by my own shortcomings. So it was that I determined to look again, to try to rediscover this monster land. Otherwise, in writing, I could not tell the small diagnostic truths which are the foundations of the larger truth. One sharp difficulty presented itself. In the intervening 25 years, my name had become reasonably well known. And it has been my experience that when people have heard of you, favorably or not, they change. They become, through shyness or the other qualities that publicity inspires, something they are not under ordinary circumstances. This being so, my trip demanded that I leave my name and my identity at home. I had to be peripatetic eyes and ears, a kind of moving gelatin plate. I could not sign hotel registers, meet people I knew, interview others, or even ask searching questions. Furthermore, two or more people disturb the ecologic complex of an area. I had to go alone, and I had to be self-contained, a kind of casual turtle carrying his house on his back. I was told that a stranger's purpose in moving about the country might cause inquiry or even suspicion. For this reason, I racked a shotgun, two rifles, and a couple of fishing rods in my truck, for it is my experience that if a man is going hunting or fishing, his purpose is understood and even applauded. It was said that my New York license plates would arouse interest and perhaps questions, since they were the only outward identifying marks I had. And so they did, perhaps 20 or 30 times in the whole trip. But such contacts followed an invariable pattern, some, somewhat as follows <clears throat> New York, huh? Yep. I was there in 1938, or was it 39? Alice, was it 38 or 39 we went to New York? It was 36. I remember it It was the year Alfred died. Anyway, I hated it. (laughs) Wouldn't live there if you paid me. There was some genuine worry about my traveling alone, open to attack, robbery, assault. It is some years since I have been alone, nameless, friendless, without any of the safety one gets from family, friends, and accomplices. There's no reality in the danger. It's just a very lonely, helpless feeling at first, a kind of desolate feeling. For this reason, I took one companion on my journey, an old French gentleman poodle known as Charlie. Actually, his name is Charles Le Chien. (laughs) He was born in Bercy on the outskirts of Paris, and trained in France. And while he knows a little poodle English, he responds quickly only to commands in French. Otherwise, he has to translate, and that slows him down. (laughs) He's a very big poodle of a color called bleu. And he is blue when he is clean. Charlie is a born diplomat. He prefers negotiation to fighting, and properly so, since he is very bad at fighting. Only once in his 10 years has he been in trouble when he met a dog who refused to negotiate. Charlie lost a piece of his right ear that time, but he's a good watchdog, has a roar like a lion, designed to conceal from night-wandering strangers the fact that he couldn't bite his way out of a cornet de papier. (laughs) He's a good friend and traveling companion and would rather travel about than anything he can imagine. If he occurs at length in this account, it is because he contributed much to the trip. A dog, particularly an exotic like Charlie, is a bond between strangers. Many conversations en route began with, what degree of dog is that? (laughs) The techniques of opening conversation are universal. I knew long ago and rediscovered that the best way to attract attention, help, and conversation is to be lost. A man who, seeing his mother starving to death on a path, kicks her in the stomach to clear the way, will cheerfully devote several hours of his time giving wrong directions to a total stranger who claims to be lost.
1: My name is uh, George Plimpton. Uh, Many years ago, I met uh, John Steinbeck at a party in Sag Harbor. And I told him I was having a terrible time, that I had writer's block. And he told me something which I've always remembered and which works. He said, uh, Pretend that you're writing not to your editor or to an audience or to a readership, but to uh, someone close, like a sister or a mother or someone that you um, like. And uh, at the time, I was enormously uh, enamored of Jean Seberg, the actress, (laughs) and I was to write an article about taking Marianne Moore to a baseball game. And I started it off, Dear Jean, and wrote this piece with some ease, I must say. And to my astonishment, that's the way it appeared in Harper's Magazine. Dear Jean. Which surprised her, I think, and uh, me, and very likely Marianne Moore. Uh, At the Paris Review, where I'm the editor, we wanted very much to publish an interview on the craft of writing, which has been a series that's been running through uh, the magazine since it began in 1953. And Mr. Steinbeck wanted to do this um, interview, uh, but alas, before we got started on it, um, he died. But he did speak of this diary that he kept when he was preparing East of Eden, and said that if we wanted, we could take excerpts from this diary, uh, which related to the craft of writing. And these are some of these that were published in the Paris Review. I suffer, as always, from the fear of putting down the first line. It is amazing the terrors, the magics, the prayers, the straightening shyness that assails one. It is though the words were not only indelible, but that they spread out like dye in water and color everything around them. A Strange and Mystic Business, writing, Almost no progress has taken place since it was invented. The Book of the Dead is as good and as highly developed as anything in the 20th century, and much better than most. And yet, in spite of this lack of a continuing excellence, hundreds of thousands of people are in my shoes, prying feverishly for relief from the word pangs. On the third finger of my right hand I have a great callus just from using a pencil for so many hours every day. It has become a big lumpy now and it doesn't ever go away. Sometimes it is very rough and other times as today it is as shiny as glass. It is peculiar how touchy one can become about little things. Pencils must be round. A hexagonal pencil cuts my fingers after a long day. You see, I hold a pencil for about six hours every day. This may seem strange, but it is true. I am really a conditioned animal with a conditioned hand. An amazing number of pretty girls are passing by my window. I like pretty girls very much, but I'm old enough now so that I don't have to associate with them. (laughs) And that's a relief. I think if I were forbidden by some force to work I should last a very short time. And I don't say that morbidly at all. I think perhaps I am one of those lucky mortals whose work and whose life are the same thing. It is rare and fortunate. The craft or art of writing is the clumsy attempt to find symbols for the wordlessness. In utter loneliness, a writer tries to explain the inexplicable. And sometimes, if he is very fortunate and the time is right, A very little of what he is trying to do trickles through, not ever much. And if he is a writer wise enough to know it can't be done, then he is not a writer at all. A good writer always works at the impossible. Oh, it is a real horse's ass business. The mountain labors and groans and strains and the tiniest of rodents comes out. And the great fooliness of all lies in the fact that to do it at all A writer must believe that what he is doing is the most important thing in the world. It would be a great joke on the people in my book if I just left them high and dry, waiting for me. If they bully me and do what they choose, I have them over a barrel. They can't move until I pick up a pencil. They are frozen, turned to ice, standing one foot up and with the same smile they had yesterday when I stopped. Here we go back to Charlie. I've always tried, very famous, I've always tried out my material and my dogs first. You know, with Angel, he sits there and I get the feeling he understands everything. But with Charlie, I always felt he was just waiting to get in a word edgewise. (laughs) Years ago, when my red setter chewed up the manuscript of Mice and Men, I said at the time that the dog must have been an excellent literary critic. After the theater, we went to Sardis and had dinner and saw many friends. It is so long since we've been out that it was fun, but somewhere I picked up a great sadness. I think it was John O'Hara. That is the only thing I can think of which could have caused it. (laughs) In a short time, it will be done, and then it will not be mine anymore. Other people will take it over and own it, and it will drift away from me as though I had never been a part of it. I dread that time because no one ever can pull it back. It's like shouting goodbye to someone going off in a bus and no one can hear because of the roar of the motor. He wrote a letter to uh, Nathaniel Benchley's son who was at Phillips Exeter Academy and who wanted to know something about writing the word. And this was his answer in a letter. A writer out of loneliness is trying to communicate like a distant star, sending signals. He isn't telling or teaching or ordering. Rather, he seeks to establish a relationship of meaning, of feeling, of observing. We are lonesome animals. We spend all our life trying to be less lonesome. And one of our ancient methods is to tell a story, begging the listener to say and to feel, yes, that's the way it is, or at least that's the way I feel it. You're not as alone as you thought. To finish is sadness to a writer, a little death. He puts the last word down, and it is done. But it isn't really done. The story goes on and leaves the writer behind, for no story is ever done. Um, A few days before he died, (coughs) uh, Tom Ginsberg, who was the editor of the Viking Press, which published all of Steinbeck's work, went to see him. And he said to Tom, Steinbeck did, that the one achievement that he was proudest of was that his success, his huge success, had made it possible for the Viking press to publish a lot of fierce novels by a new generation. Indeed, what a man.
2: Good evening. My name is Dorothy Allison. Can you be personable, personal about John Steinbeck, they asked me. Can you speak personally? I was born into the kind of poverty that John Steinbeck wrote about. I wanted to grow up to be a writer. Oh, I can speak personally about John Steinbeck. I remember the pleasure I took in being told that my stories were not sentimental. No gloss on the real, I told myself. To be true is to be hard-edged and precise about grief, pain, horror. To be matter of fact about rape and cruelty and death. And I've always despised whining, that sentimental stuff, those weak sisters pleading through snotty tears. I'm tough stuff, I told myself. I'll be a tough writer. You write like a man, I was told. No, I write like a dyke. Except, except sometimes, sometimes what I think is, I try to write like John Steinbeck. I try to go from everyday conversation, real people stubbornly deciding to make do with what they must, to lift their heads over the cooling bodies of those they love, and plan how they're going to bury them. I make people starve and spit and stubbornly refuse to go mad when the loss is so great madness is all that makes sense. I make them breathe, take a breath, take another, moment by moment, slow on the page, wrap that baby in baby powder sheeting, put it in the ground, root it with a rock. Do not think about what will come up in the spring. Do not think about what is gone. A specific mama, dirty hands on a muslin scrap, men in an empty landscape. The women, the men, the land. And then I hesitate. I cringe. We're not supposed to do that, you know, we writers. Can we? Are we allowed to go from the woman to the women, the grave to the land? I have to fight myself to believe we can, to take prose to poetry. Narrative to gospel, flesh to spirit, mental hesitation to passionate conviction. I have to try to put on the skin of John Steinbeck. And this is what it feels like. Phrase break, chorus, stanza, refrain. Breaking music, his or that breaking music Muriel Ruckheiser wrote about. And she was called sentimental. Gospel Choir. Beethoven choral moment, story lifting for a moment, perspective shifting up, up, and then down again into the skin of someone speaking, someone shoveling dirt on a grave. Old truck grinding, noisy gravel, man wiping dust from under his eyes. Is it Oklahoma or Bakersfield or Greenville, South Carolina on a day without rain? I do not want to be thought to write badly. I do not want to be predictable, mock poetic, or silly, foolish, romantic. Don't want to write down or betray my ignorance. Don't want evidence of prejudice to show on the page or have it seen I don't know what I'm doing or didn't think deeply enough about what I intended. I want genius. I want genius to descend and erase all petty hesitations, awkward phrases. I want song. I want a cycle of song and glory, the true, absolutely true, felt moment on the page. What John Steinbeck wanted, what he did. I am partisan to the common people, he said in his journal, partisan to the common people. On a radio show in April 1939, he quoted Ballou and said, gods and heroes and kings were the fit subjects for literature. But Steinbeck said, the writer can only write about what he admires. Present-day kings, he said, they're not very inspiring, and God's on vacation, and the only heroes left are scientists and the poor. The poor. Is that socially conscious art? Is that advocacy fiction? The Grapes of Wrath has been judged less as a novel than as a sociological event, less than as a novel than a political cause, less as a novel than as a case study, and I know about that. John Steinbeck called what he was doing participatory. He wanted the reader to feel the life of the poor. He wanted you to see and feel, be inside the struggle, the loss, the fear, the uncertainty, and the stubborn, hard-won acts that made survival possible. He wanted the experience to be lived, for the reader to know that his people were feeling almost before they felt it, making right here, right now, not at a distance, not over there, everything right here holding a stillborn child, looking up at a dangerous man and seeing contempt in his eyes for who you are, trying not to be afraid, trying not to be ashamed, immediate, not cushioned, not cushioned. A novel is not a social document. It ain't in the same category as a monograph on fathers and sons or migrant workers. But it is. It is. A novel is a social document when it stirs a community to action. A novel is a social event when it provokes change. A novel is more than any damn case study. When you feel like its people are part of your family, or better still, you are part of them. Yours, desperate, determined, large-souled and small, fearful and angry and doing just what you got to do. And what you got to do is the point, of course. What you got to do that you never before imagined yourself doing. The novelist imagines it for you and takes you inside it. You feel it. And now the music of another nation sings in you. Why is it, why is it people still castigate John Steinbeck after 60 years? He got it wrong, they say. The Jodes could not have left eastern Oklahoma, they had to have been from the western part of the state, and by God, people in those desperate circumstances, they don't act like no saints, no by God, no they don't, they act like people, people from dry, baked, rock, burn, pancake, people who pick up and leave, and they would have left just like he writes them leaving and they might have banded together, just like he imagines them doing. They might have been, in some moments, as strong, as noble as he made them be, and that, that is what I needed to read as a girl. John Steinbeck set the Jodes and his people against all the hatred, contempt, and lies that have been directed at the poor and the lost of this nation. We say, they would never have left Oklahoma. But we know what we mean by they. We know who they are. Mama and Tom, Casey and Rosa Sharon, they live for all they were, the figments of one man's imagination. The poor's advocate, the voice of a deliberately impassioned partisan advocacy, John Steinbeck, writing a novel in five months. You readers, we hear him, his voice. You readers, these people suffer and cry out for you to act. Let not another infant be buried by the side of the road. Make it happen not by penalizing the mother, but by feeding her, by giving her hope and work and a place to deliver that child. Let not another man be driven to despair, losing himself and his family. Give him dignity, a place, a share of what you yourself value. Give him pride. You, you are your brother's keeper, your sister's salvation. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, I've gone too far, haven't I? I've used the language of the Bible or a socialist in 1937. Now, any minute now, I'm going to start using phrases like, the workers, the hope of history. I'm going to go further. I can really embarrass us all. We so modern. We think ourselves beyond such things, not caring for those who we should care for caring more for our sense of the appropriate, the inappropriate, for what is good writing and not, not sentimental. Hesitate. We might overreach. The fear of overreaching. Oh, the fear of overreaching. John Steinbeck occasionally overreached. He committed the sin of sentimentalizing suffering romanticizing poverty. He mixed lyricism and realism. He voiced moral indignation and righteous outrage. He projected worth and purpose onto a people and a nation too often dismissed and held in contempt. He made me and many like me love ourselves, love our families. He made us want to be writers. He made us believe justice could be made on the page. And in his work, it could, it was.
3: Good evening. My name is Peter Matheson. <coughs> I'm very sorry I never knew John Steinbeck, though we crossed paths. Um, I felt I knew him because we both of us were very close friends and frequent house guests of our publishers, Harold and Tom Ginsburg, at the Viking Press, um, who often spoke of him. So I, in a sense, was privy to his career <coughs> as it went along. He was John was the same age as my father, so we weren't contemporaries, but still, we were at the Viking Press for a long time together, and Arthur Miller too, really. John Steinbeck's admirable early work was an important part of my own formative reading as a young writer. The grit of his descriptions, his deceptive simplicity, so free of the intrusive style that often bothered me in Hemingway and even Faulkner. <clears throat> the clear feel—I love the clear feel of that long story, *The Red Pony*, which is in the long, va- uh, which is in the, *The Red Pony*, which is in the Long Valley. Even though it betrayed an early tendency toward that sentimentality, which would mar the later work, but shouldn't obscure the extraordinary uh, qualities of simplicity and clarity. Here's, a, here's the very beginning of The Red Pony. At daybreak, Billy Buck emerged from the bunkhouse and stood for a moment on the porch looking up at the sky. He was a broad, bandy-legged little man with a walrus mustache with square hands puffed and muscled on the palms. His eyes were contemplative, contemplative watery gray, and the hair which protruded from under his Stetson hat was spiky and weathered. Billy was still stuffing his shirt into his blue jeans as he stood on the porch. He unbuckled his belt and tightened it again. The belt showed by the worn, shiny places opposite each hole the gradual increase of Billy's middle over a period of years. When he had seen to the weather, Billy cleared each nostril by holding its mate closed with his forefinger and blowing fiercely. Then he walked down to the barn. Now, that is very good writing, really. It's very precise, very evocative. You instantly know who Billy Buck is. And that's quite an accomplishment. We are, these days, the sort of simplicity of storytelling is out of fashion, it's not trendy anymore. Uh, it will come back. Storytelling is always very, very valuable. Indian people in some tribes are not allowed to tell stories in the summertime during the harvest and the season of plenty, and they save it for the wintertime. That's how precious stories are, and they are in every traditional culture I've ever been exposed to. But the books that stick to my ribs, even today, are the short novels of mice and men, then in dubious battle and the grapes of wrath, which concerned farm labor, and especially migrant labor in the Sacramento Valley. And I think they, one reason they stay with me is because they evoke my own travels in that part. They're like dreams behind all of my travels. I used to hang out with an Indian friend on the east side of the um, Salinas Valley, where Steinbeck came from. That's the Long Valley. And uh, again, later in life, I also uh, worked with Cesar Chavez a great deal in the Sacramento Valley and went up and down the valley. And of course, the Sacramento Valley is the scene of the Grapes of Wrath, and the place names really have not changed. Um, I was doing a book on the grape boycott there, which is simply a continuation of the conditions that Steinbeck wrote about in the Grapes of Wrath. And the same organizers who worked with Chavez, a lot of them had known the organizers whom uh, Steinbeck knew in an dubious battle and so forth. So the echoes are still there. Very powerful, echoes indeed. Steinbeck had been so eloquent and empathetic in his chronicles of poor people, working people, that his increasingly conservative politics as life went on were disappointing. And so were those blockbusters, such as East of Eden. As I recall, there was enormous hoopla in the offices of the Viking press when East of Eden came out, Book of the Month Club, big bestseller, mega movie sale. John, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Dean. James Dean. (laughs) James Dean. Uh, I'm afraid that was also the first Steinbeck novel I put down, unfinished. Tom Ginsburg told me that John Steinbeck was very depressed as he and his lovely wife, Elaine, set off on a sea voyage to Europe to celebrate his huge success with East of Eden. He felt he was being honored too late for the wrong book and that his best work was behind him. Possibly he was right. And perhaps this is why John Steinbeck's work, as often happens in the decades after a writer's death, is now in shadow. Hard-won simplicity not to speak of story are out of critical fashion but I like to believe that the shadow is a cloud over the sun. Even so great a writer as Joseph Conrad, after all, suffered a dimming of his reputation after his death. Now Conrad has returned into the light where he will stay. It would be wonderful if this centennial ignited a fresh appraisal of a marvelous storyteller whose best fiction will stay in the light as well.
4: Dorothy Allison reminded a woman I know in Chicago named Peggy Terry. Peggy came out of the Ozarks, and during the tumultuous 60s, she became the voice of the mountain people in Chicago. Peggy had little education, but her eloquence was such that she set all hearts on fire. During one of those gatherings, a student gave her a tattered paperback copy, well-thumbed, of Grapes of Wrath. And these are Peggy's words when she finished reading it. When I was reading Grapes of Wrath, it was like reliving my own life, particularly the part where they lived in a government camp. We were picking fruit in Texas. We lived in a government place like that. They showed us how to make mattresses. We didn't know anything. And every Saturday night, we'd have a dance. I think the worst thing our system does to people is take away their pride, prevents them from being human beings. I don't think people are put on Earth to suffer. I think that's a lot of nonsense. I think we're the highest development on earth and put them here to be happy and enjoy everything that's here. I think it's right for a handful of people to get a hold of all the thing that makes life a joy instead of a sorrow. And it takes your heart and squeezes it and then it hits you and like a big hand, it just, you don't know what the next day's gonna bring. Hunger, you don't know. I was never so proud of poor people as I was after I read Grapes of Wrath. Now, it's Steinbeck's prophetic touch, that touch of clairvoyance that makes that book so pertinent today. Fifty years later, I find myself on a farm in Iowa, 23 miles southeast of Des Moines. It's Carol Nearmeyer, fourth-generation farmer, 1989. Steinbeck is 1939. Carol Nearmeyer is losing the farm, and his wife tells me that They are on the porch one day, and the bailiff is about to repossess anything that moves. And she recognizes the bailiff. Well, before that, let me go back to a sequence. Muley Graves, the stubborn little tenant farmer, will not go along Highway 66 to the land of milk and honey the way the Joads did. He's going to defend his piece of dirt. Here comes this huge caterpillar tractor about to bulldoze the shack. And the guy on the tractor pulls up his goggles and muley says why well, you're joe davis's boy you're ours how can you do it to your own people and the guy said got a wife and two kids feet out of away. now that's 1939 and now i'm on this farm i was telling you about and carol nearmeyer says here comes the bailiff take away our stuff and i recognize him i say you're ours. How can you do this to your own people? It's like i got a family to feed. If I don't do it, someone else will. And so, in Grapes of Wrath, follow this passage. That's why the book is so pertinent at this moment. Sure, cried the tenant farmer, but it's our land. We were born on it, got killed on it, we died on it. If it's no good. It's still ours. That what makes it ours, being born on it, working on it, dying on it. That makes ownership, not a piece of paper with numbers on it. It is Carol Niermaier, 50 years later, in Iowa, 1989. There were several times I had a gun to my head, and she didn't know it, and then I got damn mad. I got to thinking about it, and I got madder. These people don't have the right to do this to me. I've worked on it, I've sweated, and I've bled. I've tried to keep this place going, and they take it away from me. Grapes of Wrath, 1939. Passage, the men were silent, it did not move often. Women came out of their homes to stand beside their men to feel that well, this time the men would break. The women studied the men's faces secretly because the corn could go as long as something else remained. Iowa, 50 years later, Calvin Nearmeyer said what Steinbeck said a half a century ago. The women were apt to talk to other farm wives about their problems rather than sit down and talk with their husbands. If I was to come up with a suggestion, he'd get very upset. It wasn't that I didn't know as much as he did. It was just that he was keeping it inside himself. Now, may I close with a pecan touch? Grapes of Wrath came out as a result of the New Deal, came out as a result of help from the Farm Security Administration under the aegis of Henry Wallace, who was Secretary of Agriculture. And those four years, 1936 and 1940, were the glory years of the New Deal. The Farm Security Administration gave us the photographs of Walker Evans and Dorothea Lange and Margaret Burke White and Gordon Parks. gave us these two great documentary films, Plow that Broke the Plains and River, music of Virgil Thompson. And it gave us the grapes of wrath, too. A man named Beanie Baldwin, whom I knew, C.B. Baldwin, was deputy under Rex Tugwell, head of the Farm Security Administration. And Beanie Baldwin says this, Almost everything we did became controversial. Harry Hopkins, then head of the WPA, had built a couple of migratory camps in California. They were transferred to us, the FSA. They were simple camps. Well, Grapes of Wrath tells it better than we could. I got a call from John Steinbeck. He wanted some help. He planned to write this book about migrant workers. We were delighted. He said, I'm writing about people. I have to live as they live. He planned to work. For seven, eight weeks, it's a pea picker or something like that. And then he asked us to assign someone to go along with him, a migrant worker. We chose a little guy named Tom Collins out of Virginia. I paid Collins' salary, which was somewhat illegal. Not quite the case of Enron, but somewhat illegal. <laughs> he and Steinbeck worked together, Tom Collins did, for seven, eight weeks. And Steinbeck insisted that Collins be technical director of the film and get credit. And he also co dedicated the book to him. At these camps, people ran their own affairs. We had our project manager there to help them. This became the most controversial thing we ever did. We built a camp, we held a public hearing. There were lots of opposition, especially from the associated farmers, the big farmers. And Steinbeck in his journal writes detail, 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 looks, clothes, gestures. I need all this stuff. It's got to be exact because the big growers will use it against me if I'm wrong. And, of course, they went crazy when the book came out. And so a friendly deputy sheriff said to Steinbeck, Don't ever stay in a motel room alone because a woman's going to come in, tear her dress off, scratch her face, and cry rape. Well, they never got him that way, but they got the book. The book was burned, I think, more than any book as far as I know in the same county that now is called, ironically enough, Steinbeck Country. So I think, I think that the one thing Steinbeck would delight in most of all, I have a hunch would be, that this book gave people like Peggy Terry revelation, self-esteem, and pride. That's what it was all about, and that's what it still is.
0: When I started this narrative, I knew that sooner or later, I would have to have a go at Texas, and I dreaded it. I could have bypassed Texas about as easily as a space traveler can avoid the Milky Way. It sticks its big old panhandle up north, and it slops and slouches along the Rio Grande. Once you are in Texas, it seems to take forever to get out, and some people never make it. Let me say in the beginning that even if I wanted to avoid Texas, I could not, for I am wived in Texas, and mother-in-lawed, and uncled and aunted, and cousined within an inch of my life. Staying away from Texas geographically is no help whatever, for Texas moves through our house in New York, our fishing cottage at Sag Harbor, and when we had a flat in Paris, Texas was there too. It permeates the world to a ridiculous degree. Once in Florence, on seeing a lovely little Italian princess, I said to her father, but she doesn't look Italian. It may seem strange, but she looks like an American Indian. To which her father replied, why shouldn't she? Her grandfather married a Cherokee in Texas. (laughs) Writers facing the problem of Texas find themselves floundering in generalities, and I am no exception. Texas is a state of mind. Texas is an obsession. Above all, Texas is a nation in every sense of the word, and there is an opening covey of generalities. A Texan outside of Texas is a foreigner. My wife refers to herself as the Texan that got away, but that is only partly true. She has virtually no accent until she talks to a Texan, when she instantly reverts. She says such words as, yes, air, hair, guess, with two syllables, yeas, ayah, hair, and gayas. And sometimes, in a weary moment, the word ink becomes ank. I have said that Texas is a state of mind, but I think it is more than that. It is a mystique closely approximating a religion. And this is true to the extent that People either passionately love Texas or passionately hate it, and as in other religions, few people dare to inspect it for fear of losing their bearings in mystery and paradox. Any observations of mine can be quickly canceled by opinion or counter-observation, but I think there will be little quarrel with my feeling that Texas is one thing. For all its enormous range of space, climate, and physical appearance, and for all the internal squabbles, contentions, and strivings, Texas has a tight cohesiveness, perhaps stronger than any other section of America. Rich, poor, panhandle, golf, city, country, Texas is the obsession, the proper study, and the passionate possession of all Texans. Some years ago, Edna Ferber wrote a book about a very tiny group of very rich Texans. Her description was accurate so far as my knowledge extends, but the emphasis was one of disparagement. And instantly, the book was attacked by Texans of all groups, classes, and possessions. To attack one Texan is to draw fire from all Texans. I've studied the, Texan, uh, the Texas problem from many angles and for many years. And of course, one of my truths is inevitably canceled by another. Outside their state, I think Texans are a little frightened and very tender in their feelings. And these qualities cause boasting, arrogance, and noisy complacency, the outlets of shy children. At home, Texans are none of these things. The ones I know are gracious, friendly, generous, and quiet. In New York, we often hear them bring up their treasured uniqueness. Texas is the only state that came into the Union by treaty. It retains the right to secede at will We have heard them threaten to secede so often that I formed an enthusiastic organization, the American Friends for Texas Secession. (laughs) This stops the subject cold. They want to be able to secede, but they don't want anyone to want them to. I find it difficult to write about my native place, Northern California. It should be the easiest, because I knew that strip angled against the Pacific better than any place in the world. But I find it not one thing but many, one printed over another until the whole thing blurs. What it is is warped with memory of what it was and that with what happened there to me, the whole bundle racked until objectiveness is nigh impossible. This four-lane concrete highway, slashed with speeding cars, I remember as a narrow, twisting mountain road where the wood teams moved, drawn by steady mules. They signaled their coming with the high, sweet jangle of hame bells. This was a little, little town, a general store under a tree and a blacksmith shop and a bench in, in front on which to sit and listen to the clang of hammer on anvil. Now. Little houses, each one like the next, particularly since they try to be different, spread for a mile in all directions. That was a woody hill with live oaks, dark green against the parched grass, where the coyotes sang on moonlit nights. The top is now shaved off, and a television relay station lunges at the sky and feeds a nervous picture to thousands of tiny houses clustered like aphids beside the roads. And isn't this the typical complaint? But in my flurry of nostalgic spite, I have done the Monterey Peninsula a disservice. It is a beautiful place, clean, well-run, and progressive. The beaches are clean, where once they festered with fish guts and flies. The canneries, which once put up a sickening stench, are gone, their places filled with restaurants, antique shops, and the like. They fish for tourists now not pilchards, and that species they are not likely to wipe out. And Carmel, begun by starveling writers and unwanted painters, is now a community of the well-to-do and the retired. If Carmel's founders should return, they could not afford to live there. But it wouldn't go that far. They would be instantly picked up as suspicious characters and de- deported over the city line. The place of my origin had changed, and having gone away, I had not changed with it. In my memory, it stood as it once did, and its outward appearance confused and angered me. Tom Wolfe was right. You can't go home again, because home has ceased to exist, except in the mothballs of memory. I did one formal and sentimental thing before I turned my back. I drove up to Fremont's Peak, the highest peak for many miles around. I climbed the last spiky rocks to the top. Here among these blackened granite outcrops, outcrops, General Fremont made his stand against a Mexican army and defeated it. When I was a boy, we occasionally found cannonballs and rusted bayonets in the area. This solitary stone peak overlooks the whole of my childhood and youth. The great Salinas Valley, stretching south for nearly 100 miles. The town of Salinas, where I was born, now spreading like crabgrass toward the foothills. Mount Toro, on the Brothers Range to the west, was a rounded benign mountain. And to the north, Monterey Bay, shone like a blue platter. I felt and smelled and heard the wind blow up from the long valley. It smelled of the brown hills of wild oats. I remembered how once, in that part of youth that is deeply concerned with death, I wanted to be buried on this peak, where, without eyes, I could see everything I knew and loved. For in those days, there was no world beyond the mountains. And I remembered how intensely I felt about my internment. It is strange, and perhaps fortunate, that when one's time grows nearer, one's interest in it flags, as death becomes a fact rather than a pageantry. Here on these high rocks, my memory myth repaired itself. Charlie, having explored the area, sat at my feet, his fringed ears blowing like laundry on a line. His nose, moist with curiosity, sniffed the wild, the wind-borne pattern of a 100 miles. You wouldn't know, my Charlie, that right down there in that little valley, I fished for trout with your namesake, my Uncle Charlie. And over there, see where I'm pointing? My mother shot a wildcat. Straight down there, 40 miles away, our family ranch was, Old Starvation Ranch. Can you see that darker place there? Well, that's a tiny canyon with a clear and lovely stream bordered with wild azaleas and fringed with big oaks. And on one of those oaks, my father burned his name with a hot iron together with the name of the girl he loved. In the long years, the bark grew over the burn and covered it. And just a little while ago, a man cut that oak for firewood, and his splitting wedge uncovered my father's name, and the man sent it to me. In the spring, Charlie... When the valley is carpeted with blue lupines like a flowery sea, there's the smell of heaven up there, the smell of heaven. I printed it once more on my eyes, south, west, and north, and then we hurried away from the permanent and changeless past where my mother is always shooting a wildcat, and my father is always burning his name with his love.
5: My name is William Kennedy. In 1933 John Steinbeck was so poor he couldn't afford a dog. The literary critic Louis Gannett uncovered this fact in the author's correspondence with his agents during the time Steinbeck was writing Tortilla Flat. He'd published three books of fiction since 1929, but together they hadn't earned back his wretchedly small advances from his publisher. Of his first novel, cup of gold, Steinbeck said, I rather wish it had never been published. Pastures of heaven and to a God unknown earned some praise, but no money. And a novel called Dissonant symphony, he withdrew from his agent saying he was ashamed of it. I need a dog pretty badly, Steinbeck wrote. Apparently we're headed for the rocks. The light company is going to turn off the power in a few days. And then he published Tortilla Flat and it became a popular success, which he didn't understand. Curious, he wrote, that this second-rate book written for relaxation should cause this fuss. People are taking it seriously. And he added, I am scared to death of popularity. This is a familiar pattern among some authors, poverty turning overnight into a confusion of success and money. But that isn't quite my point here tonight in focusing on this aspect of Steinbeck's writing life. Two weeks ago I was in a panel discussion and someone asked about self-doubt. I admitted to self-doubt on the basis of a theory I developed the hard way. And that's that's that writers don't really know what they're doing when they're doing it. Self-doubt, I suggested, is the price a writer pays for bringing out of his imagination work that is new and original to him, and he hopes, to readers. Freedom from doubt comes from courting the sure thing, cloning yesterday's successes, your own or somebody else's. How can you not have doubt about untested work that seeks to be different from anything that has gone before? Steinbeck was a writer of great substance who underestimated the value of his own work and in this regard he's a quixotic but exemplary figure who proves my theory. The originality Steinbeck was trying for in Of Mice and Men, a short work of fiction, was to write, quote, a play that can be read or a novel that can be played, to find a new form that will take some of the techniques of both, unquote. By the time he was writing it, he had earned enough money to buy a dog, a setter named Toby who one night, alone with Of Mice and Men, the manuscript, made confetti of much of it. Two months' work to do over, Steinbeck wrote. There was no other draft. I was pretty mad, but the poor little fellow may have been acting critically. (laughs) I didn't want to ruin a good dog for a manuscript I'm not sure is good at all. (laughs) Mice, as Steinbeck called it, was critically acclaimed, became a book of the month and a serious movie, but the suddenly famous Steinbeck still had his doubts. I'm not sure, he wrote, that Toby didn't know what he was doing when he ate the first draft. I have promoted Toby Dog to be lieutenant colonel in charge of literature. (laughs) By this time Steinbeck was in the first of four stages of creation of the Grapes of Wrath. The first was seven articles for the San Francisco News in October 1938 on the desperation of the migrant farm workers and Steinbeck's plea for change. The second a novel called The Oklahomans which he probably destroyed. The third a satirical novel called La La Faire Lettuceburg which attacked a cabal of power figures who through terrorism destroy a migrant workers strike. This novel was announced as forthcoming, but when Steinbeck finished it, he wrote to his publisher, uh, Pat Covici. This book is finished, Steinbeck wrote, and it is a bad book and I must get rid of it. It is bad because it isn't honest. I've written three books now that were dishonest because they were less than the best I could do. One, a novel, you never saw because I burned it the day I finished it. Not once in the writing of it have I felt the curious, warm pleasure that comes when work is going well. I had forgotten that I hadn't learned to write books. A book must be a life that lives all of itself, and this one doesn't do that. Mice was a thin, brittle book, but at least it was an honest experiment. I think I got to believing critics, thought I could write easily, and that anything I touch would be good simply because I did it. Well, any such idea, conscious or unconscious, is exploded for some time to come, unquote Steinbeck. Steinbeck then began the manuscript that became The Grapes of Wrath. He wrote it in five months, beginning in May and ending in late October 1938. He wrote in longhand, producing 2,000 words a day, the equivalent of seven double-spaced typed pages, an enormous output for any writer. But in his diary, published in, as, uh, under the title Working Days, he was flagellating himself. Quote, vacillating and miserable. I'm so lazy, so damned lazy. Where has my discipline gone? Have I lost control? My laziness is overwhelming. This would be his ninth book of fiction in 10 years, and he'd be 37 years old at publication. The diary also shows him choking on self-doubt as he finishes The Grapes of Wrath. Quote, no one else knows my lack of ability the way I do. Sometimes I seem to do a good little piece of work, but when it is done, it slides into mediocrity. Got her done, and I'm afraid she's a little dull. My many weaknesses are beginning to show their heads. My work is no good, I think. I'm desperately upset about it. I'm slipping. I've been slipping all my life. young man wants to talk, wants to be a writer. What could I tell him? Not a writer myself yet. I am sure of one thing. It isn't the great book I had hoped it would be. It's just a run-of-the-mill book, and the awful thing is that is absolutely the best I can do. Unquote, Steinbeck. Of *Grapes* is the odyssey of the Jode family of Oka- Oklahoma after a great drought causes the loss of the family farm. The landless Jode set out in a dilapidated truck across the desert to find work picking fruit in the promised land of California, a pipe dream that turns into a nightmare. Historically, the book is a major anthem and oriflamme of the multitudes at the bottom of the world, bereft and drifting outcasts from the hostile society spawned by the Great Depression. In particular, it is a hymn to the peon class that one soulless as corporate farmer said, and Steinbeck noted this, was necessary to the survival of California agriculture. Contemporaneously, The book can stand as a vivid parallel to the homeless on America's streets since the 1980s, but even more, it illumines a universal theme articulated by Ma Joad, the matriarch, who is the novel's greatest character. We ain't gonna die out, Ma says. People's going on, changing a little maybe, but going right on, and Uncle John asks Ma, What's to keep everything from stopping? All the folks from just getting tired and laying down. Hard to say, says Ma. Everything we do seems to me is aimed right at going on. Even getting hungry. Even being sick. Some die, but the rest is tougher. Just try to live the day. Just the day. I can't go on. I'll go on. It's Beckett's line before Beckett. And it was John Steinbeck's theme song as he drove himself like a peon in a lifelong quest to create literature. When the Viking press published The Grapes of Wrath, the novel, its author thought, was no good. The book became the top bestseller of 1939, won the 1940 Pulitzer Prize, still sells more than 100,000 copies a year in the U.S., probably more this year. And worldwide, it has probably sold something close to between 45 and 50 million copies, a planetary bestseller. Six months after it was published, Steinbeck wrote in his diary, quote, that part of my life that made the grapes is over. I have to go to new sources and find new roots, unquote. He published another dozen books in his lifetime, including one with a new dog, Charlie, as, uh, whom Rob Campbell has read to us about very vividly. But few of the books approached the literary excellence of his best early works. And then he published the novel, The Winter of Our Discontent. And on October 25, 1962, the Swedish Academy awarded him the Nobel Prize for Literature the greatest prize you can receive in this planet. An Academy spokesman said the novel was a return to the, quote, towering standard, unquote, of grapes. And it called Steinbeck an independent expounder of the truth with an unbiased instinct for what is genuinely American, be it good or bad. Later that day, Steinbeck answered questions from a room full of reporters, one of whom asked, Do you really think you deserve the Nobel Prize? Pete Hamill, New York's renowned columnist and novelist, was a young reporter in that room. And he remembered Steinbeck at that moment and what he called, quote, the wounded look in his eyes, unquote. Steinbeck paused and then said with his usual self-flagellation, that's an interesting question. Frankly, no. And so had begun the corral of naysaying, which tried then, and is trying still, to dishonor the work of this writer. Not everybody who likes Steinbeck would agree that discontent and grapes are of equal weight, and I'm one of those. But when I look at his achievements of Mice and Men, The Long Valley, Tortilla Flat in spite of itself, Cannery Row, a good part of East of Eden, and then The Grapes. And then I try to name other American writers whose work meant as much to me when I was discovering literature and starting to write seriously. And I count on a very small handful. John Steinbeck had the power. If at times he lacked the language and the magic that goes with mythic literary achievement and status, he had in their place a mighty conscience and a mighty heart. And 63 years ago, that man sat down to put pencil to paper. And in five miraculous months, gorged with the self doubt that plagued his life, he wrote his masterpiece, The Grapes of Wrath, a mighty book that no amount of naysaying can diminish. We ain't going to die out, is what Ma Joad said, and neither is John Steinbeck.
6: My name is Michelle Saros. When I was a young girl, I would always watch my mother, whenever she had a really hectic day from work, take some books and go into her bedroom to escape. And her two favorite authors were Danielle Steele and John Steinbeck. (laughs) And I remember her reading John Steinbeck a lot in the evening. And she'd carry a book, you know, with her to bed. And she'd either be crying or she'd either be laughing. And my father was extremely jealous. I remember who, like, he would say, I remember one time, he says, who is this Steinbeck my wife takes to bed every night? This man with big ears. <laughs> and my mother, she, she worked a day job uh, as a draftsperson. And at night, she took art courses. She would do everything she could to save money to get early editions of any Steinbeck book. I remember seeing them in our home, these hardcover uh, novels, and, and she would anyway she, way before eBay, you know. She would do everything she could to get, you know, these early editions. And there were so many things we needed in our home, other than, you know, one of our parents going out and purchasing these expensive books. I mean, at that time, We didn't have a couch in our living room. We needed a new septic tank badly. (laughs) And here was my mother, you know, purchasing these books. One thing that caused a lot of critical, you know, looks within our family was my mother going to the Steinbeck Festival every August in Salinas, California. And that was sort of the big joke in our family. Why was she taking this trip by herself for an extended weekend? to go to Salinas, you know, and to go to teas and readings, you know. There were so many things we we needed in our home. And seeing my mother's sense of passion and seeing her being so active and following that passion was very inspiring to me. What made her do something like this? What kind of man, what kind of writer inspired my mother to do these type of things? And I thought that was the greatest gift a writer had, was this gift of escape, where I could see my mother go into the bedroom or take a trip to Salinas and just escape from everyday chaos she, she was having. And that really made me want to pursue my own writing. I had kept a journal since I was 11 years old, but it was such a different thing you know, to keep a journal than to start sharing your work with complete strangers. and. I always thought, you know, as a young girl, I I grew up in Oxnard, California, and Oxnard is about 60 miles north of Los Angeles. I tried to glamorize it all the time and I'd say, oh, I grew up between Malibu and Santa Barbara. (laughs) That sounded very nice, but what could I possibly write about, you know, as a young girl in Oxnard? Especially, you know, a young Chicana, a young Mexican-American. Because in my library, in the, the neighborhood, and in my middle school, high school, there were very few books. Actually, I don't even remember any books with Spanish surnames. So I remember thinking, what could I possibly write about? And I remember one time we took a trip through, uh, we're going up to San Francisco, and we drove through Salinas. And my mother got very excited, and, and she was saying, this is where John Steinbeck's from. And, and it was then she shared with me a book that took place in Salinas. And, and I remember thinking, this was a small town we drove by, you know, and the way it was written out just so beautifully, and it really captured me. And then I thought, you know, I don't have to be a globetrotter and write about, you know, the grassy knolls of England or the beaches of Spain. I I could write about what I have a passion for. And my passion was Oxnard. (laughs) Oh, you're laughing now. (laughs) But that, you know, the people in my neighborhood, my community, my family members, that's not just, you know, we say writers have to write about what you know, but I have to go one step further and write about who and what I had a passion for. And I, and I remember that, you know, that, that really gave me a, a sense of direction. I didn't read Grapes of Wrath before I saw the movie. So I saw the movie and then I read the Grapes of Wrath. And when I relayed the story to my father... That's when he shared to me his own history as a young boy working in the orchards uh, near Gilroy, California. And that was something I never knew. That was something my parents, my great aunts and uncles sorta kept from me. As a fourth generation Californian, they tried to make us very, very acculturated, very, you know, as comfortable as possible. They didn't want my sister and I to know that hard history they had. And that was such a turning point for me, like reading Grapes of Wrath and then learning about my own family and their experiences working in day camps, working you know, in orchards and fields. The first year my mother asked me to go to the Steinbeck Festival with her was in 1991. I was so excited. She had went so many years on her own by herself, and this was the first year that I felt comfortable. I had read his work, I had driven through Salinas, I knew where we were going, and I was very excited. She ordered the two tickets, and we were set to go in August of 91, My mother, unfortunately, died in May of 91. I wasn't able to take that trip with her. I took the trip anyhow, but of course, it wasn't just the same, but it was being in Salinas really made me feel um, this connection with my mother again. Um, Not surprisingly, but just sort of ironically, or by coincidence, I was leaving, uh, getting ready to come here this evening. My father called me, he lives in California. And I said, oh, Dad, you know, I haven't talked to him in a couple of weeks. And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm just leaving, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this tribute, you know, for John Steinbeck. And, and he goes, who? You know, who? And I said, I said, John Steinbeck, you know, the writer, the writer mom liked, you know, the writer. And he goes, oh, that, the guy with the big ears, that guy with the big ears. And I said, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, so you, so you can't talk? And I said, no, I, I can't talk right now, but I'll call you tomorrow morning. And he goes, oh, that guy, he... He still takes away the women from me. (laughs) He still got it. And I was like, yeah, I was on the phone. I go, yeah, Dad, he still got it. Thank you very much.
7: I have a speech, but I thought I would just make a remark first. You know, a good writer helps to create other writers. And uh, I can recall the first time in the 30s when I read uh, John's early books, his stories, And uh, to open those pages was like uh, opening paintings. I remember clearly the challenge I felt to uh, enter into nature, something I had never thought of before coming from New York City. And uh, I began to look around in Ann Arbor, Michigan at trees and animals, and uh, I felt more alive uh, because of his prose. I thought of him as a friend, but our lives ran parallel, and with one or two exceptions, they never really crossed. I had read him in college, as I say, And by the time we met in the early 50s, he was a world celebrity whose life was filled with famous friends and the powers that come with fame. Such was the view from afar. But close up, it was his uncertainty I found surprising. And his shyness and sensitivity, especially when he was so physically large and so deliberative in his views. We lived in a time distorted by obligatory and defensive patriotism in the 50s, an atmosphere which seems to be incubating again, incidentally. The contest then, however, was with the Russians, and it grew uglier by the week. John, after all, had begun as a radical writer. And the guilts inherent in that kind of alienation were compounded by the strident demands of convention in the 50s and later. It was perhaps inevitable, given the near hysterical state worship of the hour, that he should have come to feel alien to both past and present ideologies. Filled with feeling, he tended to seek out the reassurance of goodness in the American world, and to some extent, perhaps, to sentimentalize occasionally the underdog rather than weighing his inherently threatening possibilities if misled. Steinbeck, utterly American, had a suffering conscience. His moral life was always central in his work and his daily existence. So at times he would feel compelled to feign a toleration, if not a chuckling, sardonic air of acceptance of almost any kind of repulsive behavior. The alternative was an isolation only an ideologue would cherish. I couldn't help seeing in John a grown up country boy who saw glamour in the city, which a native New Yorker like myself was blind to. He had read philosophy and much classical literature and enjoyed talking about arcane and mysterious forces affecting human fate. But he seemed to like best sitting and carving wood. And it was when he was talking about farm or small town life that a certain genuine warmth poured out of him, a kind of easy familiarity and joy. I could be mistaken in this, but I often wondered if he wouldn't have been better served as a writer and more accepting of himself as a person had he stayed home, as Faulkner and Welty tried and often enough managed to do. To be honest about it, I often felt Steinbeck in the last part of his life was feeling much of the time like a sort of displaced person rather than a cosmopolitan at home anywhere. But then it is a very rare thing for an American writer to stay home. We tend to use up the energies of a particular place, then to leave home in the attempt to capture a wider America. But in the end, America is perhaps only a lot of little places, the undistinguished streets and neighborhoods and countrysides of native ground. I can't think of another American writer, with the possible exception of Mark Twain, whose imagination so deeply penetrated the political life of the country. The Grapes of Wrath, as I recall, stopped a deaf Congress from babbling on about very little and turned its attention to the masses of people who had been forced off their native lands by the Depression then turned into desperately ill paid itinerant farm labor, attacked and often murdered by thugs employed by harvest contractors who were resolved to squelch protest of any kind. The Jodes became more vividly alive than one's next door neighbor, and their sufferings emblematic of an age. His picture of America's humiliation of the poor was Steinbeck's high achievement, a picture which for a time challenged the iron American denial of reality. As I say, we were not privy to one another's private life, but our paths on a few occasions did cross, sometimes in an illuminating way. I had broken off my relation with Ilya Kazan after his cooperating testimony before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Some weeks, some weeks or months later, I can't long, recall how long exactly, John, who was a friend and sometime collaborator and intimate of Kazan's, wrote to say that he felt I ought to resume a friendship that had been so deep and a working relationship as productive as ours had been in the theater. He saw, quite correctly, that we were both wounded by what had come between us and off to do, to do what he could to heal the breach. For myself, in the struggle of that time, I could see no way to go back over that broken bridge and have never known what Kazan's reaction was to Steinbeck's attempt. But within a week or two, a second letter from Steinbeck arrived. This apologized for his having suggested what, on thinking about it, he realized was impossible. Taken together, both letters reflect perhaps the two sides of Steinbeck, perhaps the two eras of his development, the struggle within him between an overflowing sympathy for suffering a veritable embrace of those in pain, and a hard-headed grasp of moral dilemmas from which, with all the goodwill in the world, there is no escape. But I think Steinbeck's whole life was a hard struggle, first to achieve recognition, and then to dig in against easy and shallow popularity and the wilds of empty show business values, which in so many ways have triumphed in our whole culture. Even when mistaken, as in my view, he was when declaring support for Lyndon Johnson's doomed Vietnam policies, the way he chose for himself was uh, far from easy. In a word, he was not outside the battle, safely wrapped in his fame, but within it to the end. Thank you.
0: It would be pleasant to be able to say of my travels with Charlie, I went out to find the truth about my country and I found it. And then it would be such a simple matter to set down my findings and lean back comfortably with a fine sense of having discovered truths and taught them to my readers. I wish it were that easy, but what I carried in my head and deeper in my perceptions was a barrel of worms. I discovered long ago in collecting and classifying marine animals that what I found was closely intermeshed with how I felt at the moment. External reality has a way of being not so external after all. This monster of a land, this mightiest of nations, this spawn of the future, turns out to be the macrocosm of microcosm me. If an Englishman or a Frenchman or an Italian should travel my route, see what I saw, hear what I heard, their stored pictures would be not only different from mine, but equally different from one another. If other Americans reading this account should feel it true, that agreement would only mean that we are alike in our Americanness. In the beginning of this record, I tried to explore the nature of journeys, how they are things in themselves, each one an individual and no two alike. I speculated with a kind of wonder on the strength of the individuality of journeys and stopped on the postulate that people don't take trips, trips take people. That discussion, however, did not go into the lifespan of journeys. This seems to be variable and unpredictable. Who has not known a journey to be over and dead before the traveler returns? The reverse is also true. Many a trip continues long after movement in time and space have ceased. I remember a man in Salinas who, in his middle years, traveled to Honolulu and back. And that journey continued for the rest of his life. We could watch him in his rocking chair on his front porch, his eyes squinted, half closed, endlessly traveling to Honolulu. My own journey started long before I left and was over before I returned. I know exactly where and when it was over. Near Abingdon, in the dog leg of Virginia, at 4 o'clock of a windy afternoon, without warning or goodbye or kiss my foot, my journey went away and left me stranded far from home. I tried to call it back, to to catch it up, a foolish and hopeless matter, because it was definitely and permanently over and finished. The road became an endless stone ribbon, the hill's obstructions the trees' green blurs, the people simply moving figures with heads but no faces. All the food along the way tasted like soup, even the soup. (laughs) My bed was unmade. I slipped into it for naps at long, uneven intervals. My stove was unlighted, and a loaf of bread gathered mold in my cupboard. The miles rolled under me unacknowledged. I know it was cold, but I didn't feel it. I know the countryside must have been beautiful, but I didn't see it. I bulldozed blindly through West Virginia, plunged into Pennsylvania, and grooved Rocinante to the great wide turnpike. There was no night, no day, no distance. I must have stopped to fill my gas tank, to walk and feed Charlie, to eat, to telephone, but I don't remember any of it. It's very strange. Up to Abington, Virginia, I can reel back the trip like film. I have almost total recall. Every face is there. Every hill and tree and color and sound of speech and small scenes ready to replay themselves in my memory. After, after Abington, nothing. The way was a gray, timeless, eventless tunnel. But the, at the end of it was the one shining reality: my own wife my own house, in my own street, my own bed. It was all there, and I lumbered my way toward it. Rocinante couldn't be fleet, but I had not driven her fast. Now she, she leaped under my heavy, relentless foot, and the wind shrieked around the corners of the house. If you think I'm indulging in fantasy about the trip, how can you explain that Charlie knew it was over, too? He, at least, is no dreamer, no coiner of moods. He went to sleep with his head in my lap, never looked out the window, never said foot, never urged me to a turnout. He carried out his functions like a sleepwalker, ignored whole rows of garbage cans. If that doesn't prove the truth of my statement, nothing can. (laughs) New Jersey was another turnpike. My body was in a nerveless, tireless vacuum. The increasing river of traffic for New York carried me along, And suddenly there was the welcoming maw of Holland Tunnel and at the other end, home. A policeman waved me out of the snake of traffic and flagged me to a stop. You can't go through the tunnel with that butane, he said. But officer, it's turned off. It doesn't matter, it's the law, can't take gas into the tunnel. And suddenly I fell apart, collapsed into a jelly of weariness. But I want to get home, I wailed. How am I going to get home? He was very kind to me and patient, too. Maybe he had a home somewhere. You can go up and take George Washington Bridge, or you can take a ferry. It was rush hour, but the gentle-hearted policeman must have seen a potential maniac in me. (laughs) He held back the savage traffic and got me through and directed me with great care. I think he was strongly tempted to drive me home. Magically, I was on the Hoboken, Hoboken Ferry, and then ashore, far downtown, with a daily panic rush of commuters leaping and running and dodging in front, obeying no signals. Every evening is Pampelona in lower New York. <laughs> I made a turn and then another, entered a one-way street the wrong way, and had to back out, got boxed in the middle of a crossing by a swirling rapids of turning people. Suddenly, I pulled to the curb in a no-parking area, cut my motor and leaned back in the seat and laughed. And I couldn't stop. My hands and arms and shoulders were shaking with road jitters. An old-fashioned cop with a fine red face and a frosty blue eye leaned in toward me. What's the matter with you, Mac, drunk, he said. I said, officer, I've driven this thing all over the country, mountains, plains, deserts. And now I'm back in my own town where I live, and I'm lost. (laughs) He grinned happily. Think nothing of it, Mac, he said. I got lost in Brooklyn only Saturday. (laughs) Now where is it you're wanting to go? And that's how the traveler came home again.